We'll be looking this morning at chapter 26. And as you arrive there, you will notice there are not too many chapters left in 1 Samuel. And so in just about a month and a half, we will finish this book and turn to the New Testament, to a completely different genre of book, to the book of Romans. And so, but for now, we are in the middle of the story of David fleeing from Saul. And there is much still that we can learn from that. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 1 Samuel chapter 26. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakaliah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, with three thousand chosen men of Israel, to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakaliah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives... You deserve to die. 
because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men... May they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way. And Saul returned to his place. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. This word that applies to our lives. For it is not merely a story of David and Saul, but it is your eternal word. And Lord, we ask that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ. That you would show us ourselves, our duty and our sin that we might repent and trust in you. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, this seems like deja vu, doesn't it? Weren't we just here? This series of events in chapter 26 looks remarkably similar to chapter 24. As a matter of fact, if we dig down into it, there are several phrases and sentences that are identical in both chapters. And when this happens, critics of the Bible have a tactic that they use. They declare that this latter story never occurred. They call it a doublet. And what that means is, because there are two similar stories, and there could only possibly be one, the Bible authors make errors. And they repeat it twice. As if you and I in our lives have never had similar situations ever at different times and places in our lives. Another famous doublet is the story of Jesus feeding the multitudes. In Mark chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000. And in Mark chapter 8, he feeds the 4,000. 
And so the critics' response is, of course, the apostles can't count. They don't know what to do. But there is a reason for these doublets. There is a reason for these stories. And that is, when something happens to us a second time, our reaction should be colored by the experience of the first time. We should know what's happening. And it tells us something about ourselves or about the characters in this story this morning to see how they react to so similar a situation. And so now we will see David's reaction to a similar event of chapter 24 after having been taught the lessons in chapter 24 and in chapter 25. And what I want us to see this morning is David's faith. A faith that is maturing. What it means to have mature faith. And this applies then to you and to me. Because for us to trust the Lord Jesus Christ, for us to live and act in faith, we want our faith to mature. We want our faith to guide us to Jesus. And so what does that look like? Well, this morning we see two things about that kind of faith. First, we see faith's actions. And then second, we see faith's results. What a person of faith does in acting and what their faith looks like in their life. So let's begin then by looking at faith's actions. And the very first thing we see is that the faith of David that is maturing manifests itself in patience. At the beginning of our chapter, we see that the Ziphites are at it again. Now, you know the commercial, right? If you're a Ziphite... You betray David. It's what you do. That's who you are as a Ziphite. They're doing exactly the same thing in chapter 26 that they did at the end of chapter 23. As a matter of fact, they send the exact same message to Saul. Now you remember in chapter 23 when they said, Come down, David is hiding here. The story came out that Saul began chasing David around the hill and the only thing that saved David was a surprise attack of the Philistines. But since then, David and Saul have met. David has spared Saul. And you may remember that Saul said, I was wrong. I was acting evilly towards you. And basically, I won't do that again. So now, when the Ziphites come a second time, we expect Saul to do what? The exact same thing he did. He takes the exact same number of troops, and he goes to the exact same place on the exact same mission. And what this shows us is it shows us who Saul is. Because you see, there should be a difference here. Saul has no excuse now. He's already claimed to stop pursuing David. He knows exactly what's at stake. He knows the Lord is at work. He's even acknowledged that David will be king. But Saul still acts according to his heart. But there is another difference in the narrative this morning. You remember the last time Saul came 
and he surprised David in his cave. David wasn't expecting Saul. He had to think on his feet. Now here, David is not caught. He is not on the hill. He is instead in the wilderness, the text tells us. And he actually can see Saul and his men at some distance. This gives David the advantage. He sees Saul's force coming and how they're set up. And it's important because he can see exactly where Saul is. He's probably on some heightened place and he can see the army encamping. Now, you have to understand and see in your mind's eye how the army would encamp. It would encamp either in a large circle or a large square with sentries on the outside and at an inner more point from that, soldiers, and at an inner more point from that, maybe Saul's bodyguard, and then right in the very middle, in the most protected spot of all of the camp, Saul with his commander right next to him. Now also we need to remember that the commander of an army in this day and age would be known as a fearsome warrior. He was not an armchair general. So this is the safest possible place that Saul can be. And David says to a few of his men, who's up for a commando raid? Now, we're not told what Ahimelech says. But I wonder in my sanctified imagination if he rolls his eyes. And Abishai says, sure, I'll go. Now, I wonder about Abishai a bit here. Is he the sort of guy, ask Abishai, he'll do anything? Because David wants to go with one man in the middle of a camp of an army five times the size of his army with no other assistance. I have to tell you, if it was me next to David, I would say, have you really thought this out? Does not sound like a fun plan. What's our success strategy here? What's my life expectancy? Like an hour? I don't think so. And so David and Abishai, in any event, go and they go into the camp and they come right up and they see Saul. And right at Saul's head is his spear stuck in the ground. We can't imagine Saul being very far from his spear because after all, it is the symbol of his authority. It's not just a symbol, but if you look at Saul crosswise, he throws it at you. We've seen that, haven't we? He's thrown it at David several times. He even threw it at his son, Jonathan. This is Saul's way of showing, I'm the boss. You give me a crossword, I try to stick you with a spear. It's his authority. And so Abishai brings us to another repeat, another deja vu. He sees the situation. Now, I wonder if Abishai has also learned from the story of chapter 24. Because he does not say to David, you kill him. He says, I'm going to kill him. And he goes with a little bit of braggadocio here. Please, pretty please, let me kill him. I only have to hit him once with the spear. I don't have to take the time to strike him twice. If I hit him once, I'm going to pin him to the ground with the spear. It'll be game over. But David exercises the same patience in verses 10 and 11 that he did in chapter 24. He says, Do not destroy him, for who could put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? In verse 11, the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And so David 
has the same kind of patience, but there's a little difference here that we need to see. It's a more informed patience. This is after the incident with Nabal. And so David knows that he can trust God and that God will bring about his will. He knows that the Lord is in charge. But there's a sentence here that David gives that would be good for us to apply to our own lives. David says, As the Lord lives, in verse 10, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. You see, David is absolutely sure what the will of God is. But he's not so sure about exactly how it will come about in the circumstances. You see, we think if we are to know the will of God, we need some kind of secret revelation from God to tell us exactly what's going to happen. So if I were to tell you, you should grow up, you should get married, you should go to school, and you should provide for your family. Oftentimes our response is, well, what school should I go to? God won't tell me. Am I supposed to go to Texas? Am I supposed to go to A&M? Or if I'm really good, am I supposed to go to Michigan? Where do, where do I go? Who am I supposed to marry? All right, I know what we'll do. If that door opens now, I'm going to marry the fourth woman on the right of this section. And we make up these ploys, these plans to try to get the secret, precise will of God. But David shows us how we are to treat the will of God. Do you see what he says? He says, well, either the Lord will strike him down. And it's very interesting that that verb is exactly the same verb that's used to describe how the Lord struck Nabal. So David's seen this. Either God will directly intervene and strike him, or God will let the natural course of events go. His day will come to die. Maybe he'll die of old age. I don't know. But I know God's going to take care of this. Or maybe instead God will indirectly bring his will about. He will go out to battle and be killed in battle. I don't know what the answer is, David says, but I know who God is. And I know what his will is. And so I'm going to trust him. Mature faith trusts the Lord and has a patience for his ways to come about. We don't always know how God will bring his will to pass. Well, the second way we see David's mature faith is in his obedience. Now, David, we've seen, will not kill Saul, and he won't let Abishai do it either. Now, you can imagine Abishai. Now, you've got to get the scene here. This is not a normal conversation. This is really soft theological whispers. And you can imagine after they had the conversation, can I kill him? No, you can't kill him. Really, can I kill him? No, you can't kill him. Get the spear. I, I almost imagine Abishai responding and saying, what, what in the world do we come down here for? If we're not going to kill him, we came right here to the middle, right through all of the enemy. Why did we come here? Well, David tells him why they've come here. Take the spear and the water jug. Now, this is where I imagine Abishai rolling his eyes. Why do we need a spear? There's plenty of water back where we are. What are you talking about? Why do this? What's the purpose to this? Well, I think most obviously the spear was the sign of Saul's authority. 
And when that spear goes missing, it shows exactly how vulnerable and shaky Saul is. David is also calling Saul out on his hypocrisy. Because you see, Saul has just said, I won't hunt you anymore. I've done you wrong. And now guess what he's doing? He's hunting him. He's doing wrong. And David wants to make sure that Saul knows that he knows about his hypocrisy. The mercy of David had done nothing for Saul. And actually, it would be more reasonable for David to kill Saul here than it would have been in chapter 24. Because in chapter 24, at least you could have made the argument, maybe Saul will change. Here we see there is no hope of Saul changing. But David is showing this sparing of Saul's life has nothing to do with his hope for change in Saul. It has nothing to do with the present circumstances. What it has to do with is David is committed, no matter what, to obeying God. Now let me ask you a question. Can you say that? Are you committed to obeying God? Now before you answer, let me press it home. Are you committed to obeying God no matter what? That's what faith does. Faith obeys the Lord not because of what it sees in circumstances. When we walk by faith, we walk not by sight. You see, what David is showing us is that a a mature faith is obedient to God in spite of circumstances. Now, there's another more subtle purpose in taking the spear and the water jug. We might ask ourselves, perhaps you've already asked yourself this question, how did David get to Saul? Doesn't an army have sentries? Aren't there soldiers? There's 3,000 men. Now, everybody who's ever been in the army knows that you don't all sleep at the same time, right? You take shifts. That's how it works. And why do you take shifts? So that somebody's awake in case of an attack. But here, no one is awake. No one sees David and Abishai. No one is able to prevent this. Why? Well, the text doesn't leave us in suspense. We see it in verse 12. The, a, a deep sleep from the Lord had come upon them. So what we have going on here is the Lord is already at work for David in the midst of this. And what David is doing by taking the spear and the water jug is he is acknowledging for himself and he is showing Saul that the Lord is on his side. What an encouragement. What an encouragement to our obedience. Because you see, we obey God not so that he might be on our side. Not so that he might be pleased with us. We obey God because of what he has already done for us. We trust him based on his faithfulness. Do you trust God? Do you believe him? Then you must take everything that he says. The third way that we see a mature faith in action is in a contrast between David and his men and Abner and his men. David goes up to the top of the hill and he calls out Abner and his men. And 
He basically says, hey, sleepy eyes, what are you doing here? Look what I got. It's the king's spear. How could you leave him vulnerable? You know, that's a capital offense in this time. David speaks with an authority. And you see, Abner and his men, they had come to this area with great confidence. We might even call it an overconfidence as they set up their camp. Guys know what this is like in sports, right? It's when your team loses to somebody they should never lose to because they're looking ahead to next week. They're overconfident. They're sure they got this. And that's what Abner and his men are doing. Who could possibly come after us? How could we possibly be vulnerable? Because all that counts is the number of men and swords. It's not like the Lord is going to do anything. You see... They're overconfident, and they're lazy. They should have known about the last incident, but the lack of faith that they had made them reckless and lazy. And it's interesting, because don't we often hear from people in society that our faith is a crutch? Our faith is a crutch because we're lazy. We're lazy thinkers. We're lazy actors, and we have to depend on our faith. But the reality is, is that a mature faith energizes us to action. It makes us diligent in what we are doing. Because when we trust God, we expect Him to act. And that means we need to be ready. We need to be on the alert to act when He does. And this describes David and his men. They are ready. Whereas Abner and his men are a complete contrast. They're not diligent at all. Because they have no faith. Are you diligent in applying your faith? I mean, not just that you read God's word, but do you have a plan to grow in God's word? Are you diligently seeking to build relationships, especially in the church? You see, this points out the importance of the connections we have in the church. This is God's providence to us. He puts us in this place around people that know the Lord Jesus Christ, that know the struggles that we are going through, that are there to encourage us and to receive encouragement from us. It is the means that God has given to us to grow in grace. The second thing we see about David's mature faith is not just its actions, but its results. Because a mature faith is constantly examining itself. Now, we might think at first glance that the one who has the most faith is great and is never concerned with himself and never does any introspection. But the opposite is actually true. The deeper our faith, the more we want to please the Lord... And the more we look at whether we are actually doing that. And so David does this when he confronts Saul in verse 18. This is another deja vu moment. Again, David asks what he has done. And David is again willing to entertain the possibility that he is in the wrong. He says... 
Let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. If I'm in the wrong, I'll atone for it. Now let me ask you a pointed question. How often are you willing to admit that you might be wrong? Are you willing to think about the conflict you have with another person and think it may not be their fault, it may be my fault? I may be the one who needs to repent. I may be the one who needs to change. Are you willing to examine yourself And your own motives. Clearly, David is the innocent one here. And yet he is still willing to examine himself. That's because a mature faith has integrity. It has honesty. A mature faith trusts God. And so it doesn't need shortcuts. It doesn't need tricks. It knows that the Lord sees all things. The Lord knows the very thoughts that you think. It knows every word that you have not said out of your mouth. This is what the Lord knows. Now, if the Lord knows us to our depths, and if we are not to be duplicitous or hypocritical, then we must know we must be the same before people that we are before God. And that means there is no hiding for us. There is no pretending we are other than we are. Do you have this kind of mature faith? Do you want it? Then you have to see God as He is. He is the one who sees all things. David then says something interesting in verse 19. He says, When he's cursing men, because they've driven him out, he says, For they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now, this means this men have driven him out from his heritage, the heritage of the Lord. They are, in effect, telling him to go and serve other gods. What is going on here? What does David mean? Well, I think what we need to see is that in the Old Testament... There is a reality that the Lord was with his people in the land of Israel. We see it in the fact of the tabernacle and of the temple. That God dwelt where his name was in the land of Israel. And so to be driven out from Israel is in a sense to be driven away from the presence of the Lord. Surely at least it means David would not be able to publicly worship God anymore. You don't exactly hold a worship service to Yahweh in Philistia. You don't have a prayer meeting in Moab. We've seen this even in the book of Daniel that we've been reading the past few weeks. That Daniel was praying privately in his room and people were still spying on him to try to use that as an attack against him. And so what David is expressing here is a heartfelt hunger for the worship of God. He doesn't want to be kept from public worship. Now, a mature faith wants to worship and be with the Lord. Now, in a sense here, if I ask, does this describe you? Are you eager to worship the Lord? I'm preaching to the choir, right? Because y'all are here. Maybe I should be preaching to those who aren't here. But we need to think about this and examine our hearts. Because... 
Recent surveys said that up to 25% of Christians do not attend church on a given Sunday. And it's not because they're out of town, and it's not because the weather is bad, and it's not because they're ill. The reasons they give are things like, I overslept. Or, frankly, I had something better to do, is one of the excuses that was given. We want to be those who are God's people who hunger after the Lord and hunger to worship Him. Now, this is where the preacher goes from preaching to meddling. So get ready. Y'all are here. I'm preaching to the choir. But let me ask you a question. What about evening worship service? You know, we read the Bible in the evening too. You know, we preach in the evening too. We sing God's praises in the evening too. We offer up prayers to the Lord in the evening too. Do you long and hunger to worship God? If you longed and hungered to eat your favorite dessert, would you express it by saying, I want this so bad I'm only going to eat half as much of it? No. You'd say, I'm going to eat so much I'm going to risk diabetes. The Lord, as He matures our faith, gives us a hunger to worship Him. The last thing we see is that a mature faith brings us hope. Saul responds to David with yet another confession. It's actually a better confession than the one a few chapters back. He doesn't just say, I've done wicked by you. He says, I have sinned. And then he says, I'll give you a promise. No more will I come after you. Now we say, yeah, we heard that one before. And he gives the reason. He says, I was a fool. Please come home, David. Now the interesting thing is that in verse 22, David responds very bluntly. His response is, here's your spear. Send somebody over to come and get it. In effect, not only am I not coming back, I'm not even bringing your spear back. You've got to send somebody to come get it from me. Now, why does David do this? Why is he so harsh? Is it a matter of, you fool me once, shame on you? Fool me twice, shame on me? I don't think so. I think it's more than that. I think it's that David has absolutely no hope in Saul. He's not even looking for it. All of his hope is instead in the Lord. Do you see what he says in verse 23? The Lord will reward. He says, As your life was precious in my sight, may my life be precious. Notice what he does not say. He doesn't say, In your sight, Saul, so you stop coming after me. He doesn't even attempt that. He says, May my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. All of his hope, all of his trust, is in God. Is that where your hope is? In all of your troubles, where do you look for hope? Do you look in politics? Or in money? Or in education? Or in your wit? Or do you hope in the Lord and in His character and His promise? You see, what this chapter shows us is much more than who David is 
and what happened to David. It shows us that a faith that has grown and is growing is marked by a patient trust, by an active obedience, and by diligence in all that we do. Such faith changes us. Because it is the work of the Lord through the power of the Holy Spirit to make us more and more like Christ. It gives us integrity. It gives us a hunger to be with God. And it gives us all of the hope we need that is placed firmly in the Lord. Let's pray.